The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter in the Bible, as he's addressing the resurrection, starts off by saying this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel that we preach. That's what we as a church celebrate on this Easter Sunday morning, the gospel that Jesus died He was buried, and he rose again. And that's how you're saved. If you're here this morning and you are saved, it's saved. You are saved because you have put your faith and trust in this gospel that is being proclaimed here this morning. Now, Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and talk about all the different people that had interactions with the risen Savior. And this morning, as we look at the passage before us, we're going to start by looking at the burial of Christ. You know, part of the gospel is his burial. We spend a lot of time talking about his death, a lot of time talking about his resurrection, but also a part of the gospel message is the fact that he was buried. It's the proof that he was dead. Even though we have those skeptics around, even to this day, who would tell you, uh, Jesus didn't really die. You know, he just pretended to be dead. Listen, the Romans did not make mistakes when it came to crucifixion. The Romans did not let people who were alive off of the cross. They ensured that the individuals were dead. And the burial of Jesus Christ is the proof that he had died on that cross. And he did all of this according to the scriptures, just the way it was foretold that it would happen. This Jesus, as he interacted with people there right after his resurrection, has also interacted with all of us who put our faith and trust in him. Everybody here this morning that knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior has a story of what Jesus has done in their life. All of us have a story to tell. And if we had the time, which we don't, we could go around and we would hear amazing stories of how people came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and what Christ has done in their lives. We heard stories this morning from those who were being baptized as they proclaimed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I thought as we looked at this passage of Scripture together, I would break it down by the different individuals who are mentioned here in the passage and talk about them a little bit as we focus on our Lord and Savior, Jesus. The first person I want us to notice as it relates to the burial of Jesus is Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph. Now, what do we know about him? Well, it's interesting that Joseph is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. 
member of the council. We sometimes uh, think of these religious leaders as all of them being wicked in the, name, in the time of Jesus. We think of all of them being opposed to Jesus. But Luke chapter 23 will inform us that this Joseph was a good man. He's a good man. He's respected among the other leaders on the council. We also know about him that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And then we know, thirdly, that he took courage and asked for the body of Jesus. You see, John chapter 19 will inform us that this Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. Now let's let that sink in for a second. A secret follower of Jesus. Sometimes there are people who know Jesus, but they're keeping it a secret. Uh, here on the council, Joseph is one. He's not letting people know that he is a follower of Jesus. But now the time has come that he must let people know. And that's going to be the way with everyone who is a secret follower of Jesus. There will come a time when you must let others know that you are a follower of Jesus. You know, we have a precedent from that back in the Old Testament in the whole book of Esther. There Esther was a Jew, but she didn't let anybody know that she was a Jew. And she became queen, and it was only after there was a plot to wipe out all the Jewish people that her uncle Mordecai said to her, you must intervene. Yeah, but there's a death sentence upon all Jewish people. But you must intervene. Perhaps God has put you in this position for such a time as this. You know, as a church, we saw just recently when Afghanistan was in the news and the borders were being closed, we were made aware of that pastors who had been trained by a missionary of ours were in danger of being put to death if they did not get out of the country. And a person in a neighboring company, a neighboring country, high up in the government, had been discipled by our missionary, but he was a secret follower of Jesus, for if they knew that he was a Christian, he would have not been advanced in that government and possibly could even have been put to death. But God raised him up at such a time that occurred that through the giving of people in this church, he helped arrange and work to where almost 1,500 Christians were able to escape from Afghanistan into a neighboring country. You see, the pastors that we were supporting, they said, we won't leave without our congregation. We can't leave them behind. So if we're going to leave, you have to make means for them to come as well. 
And I give praise to God for the, the giving of the people here, a quarter of a million dollars to rescue almost 1,500. God put that official in his place for such a time as this. And you know, though we don't always understand it, there are those who are secret followers of Jesus. But there will come a time that God will have them in the place that he wants them so that they can do what he has called for them to individually do. And he uses them. And so at this point, I can tell you, the secret's out. Joseph is no longer a secret follower of Jesus. They will all know about him. See, we also know about this man from Luke chapter 23, that he had not consented to their plan and their action. When the religious leaders came together and made this plan to put Jesus to death, he did not consent to their plan. He didn't go along with it. Our tendency is to clump them all together, isn't it? Every religious leader of that day was, you know, anti-Jesus. Every religious leader of that day was against him. But that was not true. We also know there was another prominent religious leader who he comes to play here with the burial of Jesus as well. And his name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you know that name. He's the one who met with Jesus at night. And he said to Jesus, we know you have to be a teacher sent from God. And Jesus went right to the heart of the issue with Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. You must be born from above. So we see Joseph here. Now Joseph is doing a very important function. See, the Romans didn't care much for the bodies of those that they crucified. It would be common for the Romans to just leave the bodies on the, the cross and not even take them down for burial. In Israel, they would take the bodies down, and typically they would, the bodies would not be buried. They would just be cast aside, uh, most likely into Gehenna, the garbage dump around the city of Jerusalem that was constantly burning. That's where they would place the body. But Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Pilate's amazed that Jesus is dead already. So he checks and it's affirmed that he is dead and the body is granted to Joseph. Now think about it. This is no easy task for Joseph to take a body off the cross. You're going to have to lower the cross. There are nails in his hands and in his feet. Joseph is then going to have to carry that body. And he wraps him in linen and he uses various fragrances upon the body. That was for the purpose of dealing with the stench of a body as it would decay. See, the Jews did not embalm bodies the way the Egyptians did. 
Instead, the Jews would wrap it in cloth with putting very various fragrances in that wrapping. So this is a hurry-up job because it's on Friday. Sunday or Saturday is the Sabbath. So Jesus had to be placed into the tomb, buried, before 6 o'clock on Friday. Have you ever wondered how we get to three days with the, the death of Jesus and his burial? We're told that he would be in the grave for three days. You know, this bothered me for a long time. I can remember even as a kid trying to figure out, well, how is that three days? You know, he's, he's placed in the, the, the tomb late on Friday, and then he's there all day Saturday, and then he resurrected on early Sunday morning. Well, for the Jews, their days begin at 6 o'clock in the evening. And in the Jewish reckoning, any part of a day is counted as a day. So we know that Jesus was buried before 6 p.m. on Friday, so there Friday day one. He was there on the Sabbath, Saturday, day two, and he rose again early Sunday morning, which would be day three. So that's how we get to the three days of him being in the tomb. So Joseph takes him. He's placed in the tomb. Joseph uh, has a large stone rolled over the opening into uh, where the body has been laid. That would be to keep animals out of this burial area. So Jesus is buried on Friday. S.M. Lockridge has written a little piece that relates to Friday that's entitled, Sunday is Coming. It's Friday. Jesus is praying, Peter sleeping, Judas betraying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know. That Sunday is coming. It's Friday. Jesus walks to Calvary. His blood dripping. His body stumbling. His spirit's burden. But you see, it's only Friday. And Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The world is winning. People are sinning. Evil is grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail the Savior's hands to the cross. They nail the Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. 
Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. The Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know it's only Friday. And Sunday is coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can anyone save him? It's Friday. But Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles, the sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. Satan is laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard. A rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It is only Friday. And Sunday is coming. So let's look at the events of that great Sunday morning where our Savior is resurrected. And I want to look at it through the eyes of the three women, first of all. We're told in verse 1 that when the Sabbath was passed, that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome come to the tomb. The three of them. Isn't it interesting that the first ones who will come to the tomb and the first ones who will tell the resurrection story are women. You know, I cringe sometimes when I hear the critics of Christianity talk about Christianity being a, a religion that puts down women. Nothing is further from the truth. Christianity elevates the role of women. Christianity in every country where it goes, it provides freedom for women. It raises them up. And sometimes we're criticized, well, you don't give enough room for ladies. Jesus gives lots of room for ladies to use their giftedness and their abilities. And it is the women who's showing their love and devotion for him that are giving the privilege of being the first ones to tell the story of his resurrection. Now, let's think about the three women that are there. One is Mary Magdalene. Now, she is probably the one that we know best of these three women. She's one that we know from the scriptures that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. And following that, she became one of his followers. Typically, historically, and in movies, she is portrayed as being a prostitute. But there's nothing in the scriptures that indicates that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. She is one who witnessed the trial of Jesus, witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, and now she is here at the tomb to put additional treatment on his body. 
The second person mentioned is Mary, the mother of Joseph and James. This is James the Lesser. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. And so it is implied that Mary also was a follower of Jesus and probably traveled around with her son in supporting him and in helping him. And then we also have Salome. And she, we know a little bit better than the second Mary, she is the mother of James and John. She's the wife of Zebedee. She's the one that goes to Jesus and asks that if her two sons, James and John, can have the positions of being on the right and left hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. She was there at the crucifixion as well. These are the three ladies. Now, they brought spices. Now, first of all, it's an act of love and devotion on their part because to plan to enter a tomb where a body has been placed, there would be a stench coming from that decaying body. Also note, they are going there not expecting to find a risen Savior. They are going to treat his body. Now, as they're going, they haven't given much thought to uh, what about that big stone that's been put in front of his tomb. Uh, they probably do not know about the fact that in addition to the stone being there, remember the Jews were very concerned that something might happen to the body of Jesus. See, the religious leaders understood that Jesus had proclaimed that he would rise from the dead, so they were very much afraid that a missing body would give uh, wings to a story that Jesus had somehow been resurrected from the dead. So though the disciples didn't seem to totally understand this message from Jesus, the religious leaders did seem to understand that there was a prophecy by Jesus talking about what would happen to his body and that he would rise from the dead. So you remember, they went to Pilate and had the, the stone sealed and also had soldiers put there to guard the tomb because they were afraid that something might happen. And in their hardened hearts, the scriptures tell us that after Jesus was resurrected, that they paid off the soldiers to go tell people that someone came and stole the body. Well, as they go, they haven't thought about who's going to roll that stone away, that big stone away, and that's understandable. When people are in grief, when they're in sorrow, there are things they do not think about. They're not thinking correctly about everything. So they go with spices. They probably purchased those spices uh, on Saturday evening. See, this Sabbath would have ended at 6 o'clock. The shops would have opened. They probably would have gone and purchased those additional spices to put on the body of Jesus, but then it became too late for them to go until the next morning. So early the next morning, they are going to the tomb. And they are going to go from despair to celebration. 
Because there they are going to meet an angel. An angel that is going to tell them, He is not here. He is risen. And you're going to see him over in Galilee just like he told you. So let's transition and talk about the angel for a moment that we find here in the passage. Now, as we think about angels, I always feel like I have to give a disclaimer. Because in the story of the resurrection, when people, and in the Bible, when people see angels, they're terrified at the sight of angels. And yet most of the artist's renditions I've seen of angels are nothing that would cause me to be terrified or afraid at all. See, first of all, uh, Mark refers to the angel as a young man. Sorry, ladies, there are no female angels. Regardless of what your husband or boyfriend tells you, you're not an angel. You're not going to become an angel Angels are always portrayed as young men. Uh, they, are, they are seen, uh, typically they're described as being dazzling in white, and people who see them are afraid of them. Not like these artist renditions where we have uh, women with wings on their backs, uh, and uh, that's really not going to frighten or scare anyone. Incidentally, in case you don't know, nowhere in the scriptures does it say that, that angels have wings. You say, but they fly. Yeah, they can fly. And they can fly without wings. You say, nobody can fly without wings. Superman does. <laughs> so, also... And don't get me started on these baby cherub angels. <laughs> Boy, they would be real frightening, would they? Woo! <laughs> but they're dazzling. Mark doesn't tell us it's an angel, but Matthew tells us that it was an angel. We also know from the other accounts there were actually two angels present there. We say, why does Mark only mention one? Because it's only one who speaks. That why that is why Mark mentions the one. And this angel is amazed. First of all, think about the privilege this angel has to be the one that is there to proclaim that Christ is risen. Out of all the angels, and we're not told what this angel's name is, but this angel is chosen and his companion who is there. Out of all the angels, they get the privilege of being there. And they have to be thinking, What's wrong with you disciples? He told you what was going to happen. See, the angels have the perspective that throughout eternity, they have seen God speaks and it happens. What God says is going to occur always occurs. It always takes place. So what's wrong with you human beings that you don't get that? going to say, you know, go and tell his disciples about this. See, the angels are amazed at the whole salvation story. First Peter chapter 1 tells us that angels long to look into the story of our salvation. Because for angels, there was no redemption for them when they fell. 
The angels that fell, it was a one and done situation. And they can't understand how God would love us as individuals and love us so much as human beings that God would become flesh and that Jesus would go to the cross and die for us to be saved. And so what a privilege for them to announce he is not here. Now notice their message. Go tell his disciples and Peter, verse 7. Go tell his disciples. Isn't Peter one of the disciples? Wouldn't it cover everything to just say, hey, go tell his disciples that he is risen. But special attention is given to Peter, and I think for several reasons. First of all, Peter is one that is the leader of the disciples. He's the first among the equals of the disciples. Peter also has miserably failed his And Peter probably does not even consider himself worthy of being one of the disciples. So go tell his disciples and tell Peter. You know, Peter had failed miserably. But Jesus knew about it before he failed. You remember Jesus told him when Peter said, though everybody else abandoned you, Lord, I'll be right there with you. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. It's Peter that when they come to arrest Jesus, that pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of the man who's come to take Jesus. And Jesus tells him, Peter, put your sword away. Because those who live by the sword will die by the sword. It is Peter who then, just like Jesus said, denied him three times. Jesus knew all about it before it occurred. Jesus noticed Peter's failure when it happened. We're told in Luke 22, verse 61, that after Peter had denied him for the first time, that Jesus and Peter made eye contact. So much so that Peter will then go out and weep bitterly. Jesus gave him the look. Have you ever gotten a look from somebody? You know, husbands, have you ever gotten that look from your wife? She doesn't have to say a word. She just looks at you, and it communicates a message. Uh, Children, have you ever gotten that look from your parents? You know, that look that says, we don't want to make a scene out here in public, but you know you better straighten up right now. You know, the the look can be a a look that communicates amazement. It can be a look 
that communicates sadness, a look that communicates disappointment, a look that com communicates, I told you so, a look that communicates joy. Just a look can communicate much. Now, I believe when Jesus made eye contact with Peter, it wasn't a look of disappointment. Jesus knows Peter. He knows that Peter is just dust. So it's not a look of disappointment. I do think it's a look of sorrow. And sorrow for what he knows is going to be the sorrow that will be bound up in Peter's heart over this denial of him. See, Jesus noticed Peter's failure when it happened. And Jesus noticed Peter's failure after it happened. You see, after the resurrection, there's going to come a day when they're on the shore and Jesus is going to call Peter aside and he's going to ask Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And if you do, Peter, then do the work that I've called you to do. Feed and shepherd my sheep. See, God is not through with Peter, even though he has failed miserably. So let me ask some questions as far as application this morning. First of all, are you here this morning like Joseph, a secret disciple? Is it time for you to come out of the shadows and to step out and let people know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Just as we had individuals this morning, that's what baptism is all about. It's your public proclamation. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm not ashamed to be called one of his followers. For some of you today, that's the decision you need to make, to follow Jesus in baptism and proclaim to others, I'm no longer a secret follower. I am going to be a follower that is known of Jesus. For some this morning, you are here and you're haunted by the mistakes that you've made in the past. Maybe sins that you have committed. Words that you have said. Deeds that you have done. Maybe it's in the way past or maybe it's in the recent past. And you're disappointed in yourself. And you just don't know how God could ever use you again based on what you've said or what you've done. Or based when you had an opportunity to speak up and you didn't do it. And you're carrying around that sorrow and that disappointment. Friends, I want you to know, just like with Peter, God knew you were going to do that before you ever did it. And God wants you to repent of that, to confess your sin, to get back in right relationship with him 
so that you can be a messenger of the grace of God and the forgiveness that we can have in him. For some of us here this morning, the application for us is just what the angels told the women to do. Go and tell them. Go tell. Go tell. He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said. Robert Louis Stevenson, who's best known for his story, Treasure Island, was in poor health through much of his childhood and youth. One night, uh, the nurse that was caring for him came into his room and found him over at the window with his nose pressed up against it, looking outside. The nurse said, come away from there. You're going to, you're going to catch a cold And he stayed there, mesmerized by what he saw. See, in those days, there were street lamps that were really candles, and each night they had to be lit by the street lighter. And as Robert Louis Stevenson looked out the window, and he noticed those lights being lit, he made this statement to his nurse. See, look there. There's a man poking holes in the darkness. And that's what God has called us to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said to his followers, you are the light of the world. We are lights of the world as we reflect his light into the world. And as we do so, we poke holes in the darkness. We do that because we have a message. Our Savior is not dead. He is risen. Let's pray together. I wonder as we go to a time of prayer, is there anyone here this morning that would say, Butch, I, I find myself among those who I'm really having problem forgiving myself for what I have done. Would you pray for me in this final prayer? I'm haunted by something that I've done or said and that. So would you just lift me up that I might know that full forgiveness from God? If that's your case, just raise your hand all over the congregation. Just slip your hand up, slip it back down. Father, thank you for the forgiveness that we can have in our Savior. Thank you that we do not serve a dead Savior, but a risen Savior. And because he's alive, he can give power to us that we might live forever as well. We proclaim the message of our Savior today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.